Well, folks, it's the Hemang Pulse. This is the podcast that allows you to keep your fingers on the pulse. And we have actually a first timer on the Hemang Pulse, although he has been on my other podcast, Healthcare Unfiltered. Dr. Saad Osmani from Memorial Sloan Kettering is joining us today to talk about ASH and myeloma. Saad, welcome to the show. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much uh, for having me, Chari. Happy to be here. Happy to discuss a lot of fun science that will be presented at ASH this year. I just want to tell listeners that we are taping this actually a couple of days before ASH, very late night on a Monday evening. And I they have to know that I owe you this one because really you went out of your way to share with us your wisdom and your knowledge about myeloma. So um, I want to acknowledge this publicly. I appreciate you taking the time. But uh, maybe a brief intro, just a little bit, at least for folks uh, who don't know you, uh, they, to know a little bit about you. No, certainly. So, you know, I'm, I'm Saad Usmani. I'm, I'm a myeloma doc. Uh, I serve as the chief of uh, the myeloma service at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And, uh, you know, I've been involved in myeloma research, uh, you know, for you know, 15 plus years, um, seen a lot of, um, you know, wonderful changes come in the field. And, uh, you know, it's uh, really a privilege to be part of, uh, you know, this change in the natural history of the disease and be part of this story that so many of us are, uh, you know, involved with. Um, so uh, it's you know, amazing. Thanks. The progress in myeloma is amazing. I mean, when I was a resident, the median survival was probably three years or maybe something like that, two or three years. And, and um, I perfected giving VAD at the time, believe it or not. That was how I was giving. So ASH 2023 in San Diego, there are thousands of abstracts. We understand that. And it's probably a very difficult task to ask you. But you did intrigue me when you tweeted and you said that you are going to look at some of the ASH abstracts and you're going to share with us some of the ones that you thought are very clinically relevant uh, potentially practice changing or near practice changing. So with that in mind, let's start with the first, and not in the order of importance, but let's say with the first abstract you'd like to share with our listeners. Well, certainly, Chari. And, and before I share the abstract, I want to you know, um, share you know, how we got to where we are you know, uh, with the point that you made about you know, what treatment used to be in myeloma in terms of survival. And you know, if you recall, Chadi, we didn't care about the depth of response, we just wanted any response, you know, uh, from, from patients, you know, if we got a PR, that was a measure of success at that time. And, and now the paradigm has changed, you know, for newly diagnosed patients, we want patients, we want to give patients the best treatment options to get them to MRD negativity, you know, by either flow or NGS. So with, with that goal in mind, I think, you know, there has been, you know, uh, a big debate about whether it's time to change induction treatment from three to four drugs. Is it okay to add anti-C38s into induction? And this is where I think, you know, ASH, uh, has um, um, a very important phase three trial, um, you know, that's um, being pre uh, been presented, uh, the, the Perseus study, um, you know, we'll all learn about this a little bit more, but it's, um, you know, it's the phase three version of the Griffin trial. Um, so DARA RVD given as induction and post-transplant consolidation followed by DARA LEN maintenance in the experimental arm. And the standard of care arm is RVD and then, you know, post-transplant maintenance is with LEN alone. So uh, similar in design to Griffin, but powered as a phase three. And 
what is so stark is the the PFS curves that you see are exactly similar to what we saw in the Griffin study. So it's really validating, you know, the use of quadruplets as the preferred induction treatment. And and now that we have this phase three data, you know, the the previous, you know, question mark used to be, well, Griffin is only phase two. It's an only randomized phase two. Now we actually have, you know, uh, phase three data that's kind of validating the same, um, you know, same uh, uh, message. You know, uh, speaking of MRD, our mutual friend, Rafael Fonseca, his license plate on his car is MRD Neg, as you know. Uh, so he, if he's listening, hopefully he will appreciate that. But uh, Saad, uh, with the with this trial, the quadruple uh, induction versus triplet, do we need two drugs for maintenance? Do you need Dara Len, or can you get by with Len? Because you kind of right. I mean, you know what I mean. Yeah, no, no, I I know exactly what you mean, and I think you know that still remains you know an open question for us. You know, is the patient getting that PFS benefit because they because they got Dara early? Or is it the maintenance phase? And you know, um, I I don't think that this trial will help us answer that particular question because there is no double randomization, uh, you know, in in this particular trial. However, you know, there is another trial, you know, that we are going to be, you know, it's going to be, uh, you know, talked about a lot at Ash called the Ischia trial. Uh, and and there, you know, um, I think you know there is uh, a, a second ran randomization planned. Um, there is another study that's not being you know uh, updated, um, uh, you know, to that detail, uh, you know, in this particular meeting. Uh, but there's a German trial which will also help us figure that part out. Um, I What's think. What's the Ischia uh, trial? Can you share with us the Ischia trial? Certainly. So the Ischia trial is a follow-up to the Forte trial. The Forte trial had looked at KRD, so carfilzomib, as the proteasome inhibitor of choice in a PI-emid triplet. Um, it was, uh, KRD was given as induction post-transplant consolidation uh, compared to carfilzomib with cyclophosphamide dexamethasone in the same schema or 12 cycles of KRD. So that was the Forte trial, and it actually showed that the KRD transplant arm one in terms of depth of response, in terms of PFS. But that was a randomized phase two study. Ischia was a follow-up where they used KR, the KRD arm as standard of care and added isotuximab to the experimental arm. And, and, and so it's ISA KRD versus KRD. So another quadruplet versus triplet uh, regimen clinical trial, but interestingly has a higher proportion of patients with high-risk disease. Um, and that was also the focus of the Forte. Forte was enriched for high risk. So, you know, the Ischia trial is also, you know, answering that four versus three drug question, but will provide us with better information about what, you know, whether we should be picking a different proteosome inhibitor for high risk patients. What is the current working theory for you guys in the myeloma world in terms of carfilzomib versus bortezomib? Uh, I mean, uh, because I hear two schools of thoughts. There are people who say, I don't think KRD is better than VRD. And some people say maybe. So is there a consensus amongst you guys as to the best proteasome inhibitor for this disease? For standard risk patients, I don't think there is any disagreement that, you know, bortezomib um, is good, you know, bortezomib is good enough. 
So DARA RVD for standard risk patients or RVD for standard risk patients, you know, is is totally appropriate. Uh, I think the the issue is, you know, whether to employ carfilzomib for for high risk patients preferentially. So whether to do KRD or DARA KRD uh, for high risk patients. Uh, most of the data we have in high risk is um, single arm studies or randomized phase two studies. Uh, but if you, you know, if that is the best available evidence we have, um, you know, up to now, you know, the, the point had been, okay, you know, you know, we have to give the benefit of the doubt if, K is giving better depth of response for high-risk patients. You know, the early adapters were using carfilzomib, and I'm, I'm one of them. However, I think the ISKIA trial will actually be more convincing because that's the first randomized phase three study. It's not comparing V versus K, but it has enrichment of high-risk patients. And if high-risk patients are doing very well in terms of PFS, better than what we've seen with their RVD, then one will be compelled to utilize carfilzomib preferentially for high-risk patients. Um, you know, our center has done a single institution analysis of high-risk patients getting RVD versus KRD. And in our experience, we at MSK, we find that KRD, you know, gives better PFS um, and there, there is a better five-year OS, uh, you know, with, with KRD. But that's that's kind of the best data you'll find for high risk is single institution experiences or single arm, um, you know, or randomized phase two trials. So this is why ISKIA is important. Great. Okay. And uh, before we move on to the subsequent abstract, you have in these trials, when you talk about depth of response, are you talking molecular or you're talking like clinical, are we? Are they looking at MRD in these trials, including the one the uh, RBD plus DARA? Yes, so so they are, and you know, um, I think that there is actually a manuscript in press right now, which is which is uh, which, where we've looked at DARA RBD versus DARA KRD. You know, from from the Master and Griffin trial, uh, there's actually you know an abstract being presented about depth of response from our group looking at. DARA RVD versus DARA KRD treated at our institution. One of our fellows is looking at the high-risk population there. Um, you know, but all of these uh, depth of response experiences uh, include MRD in clinical trials as well as the, you know, uh, single institution or, or multi-institutional uh, retrospective analyses. Great. Let's move on to subsequent data. All right. So subsequent data, I think, you know, there is a lot of excitement about bispecific antibodies, as you know. Uh, you know, we've, we've, you know, we've heard about uh, them being effective, but then also concerns about, you know, the infection risk, you know, for GPRC5D targeting therapies, there's concern about, you know, skin and nail abnormalities and taste changes. Uh, and now that we have two bispecific, BCMA bispecifics, uh, you know, that are FDA approved and one GPRC5D, uh, we are seeing a lot of real world data, you know, being presented at ASH. Um, and, and so, you know, I think we learn a lot about the infection risk. What I, the abstract that I picked that piqued my interest was com the combination data of um, uh, bispecifics with IMIDS. Uh, 
because there would be, you know, intuitive synergy, you know, of mechanisms of actions. Um, and, and what I'm interested in is not just depth of response. I want to, um, you know, look at the immune profiling and T-cell function data from, from that experience. I want to look at the infection risk from, from that experience uh, because, you know, uh, from, from, from me, you know, from my perspective, I would really like to see chemotherapy-free treatments for myeloma patients moving into the front line and giving better depth of response. So, so I'm interested in learning more about that experience um, and how best to you know, utilize such regimens and try to move them into the earlier lines of treatment. So are there any, is there anything in terms of risk of infections that you have learned that you were not aware of, like in terms of things that you guys uh, need to do prophylaxis, anything, or is it pretty much just the uh, the frequency of the, like, is there anything unique that was like, oh my gosh, we didn't know that this could happen with the ADCs? So uh, with bispecifics, you know, it's it's really about the target. So B cell maturation antigen is present on plasma cells as well as, you know, uh, uh, B cells. And what we start seeing after three or four months of treatment with BCMA-directed bispecifics is that once once tumor is gone, the bispecific is, is still trying to do its job and patients start becoming lymphopenic and hypogammaglobulinemic. So uh, what we're learning is that, you know, the timeline to when that happens and when the opportunistic infections start to set in. And that timeline is important because you need to start backing off of treatment at that point. And I think this is what we learn in the real world. When patients get to optimal response within three or four cycles, then they won't need weekly treatment. You can space out the treatment to even, you know, once a month and mitigate that infection risk. Uh, sure, you can give, you know, acyclovid, you can give IVIG replacement, but even in patients who discontinue bispecifics, you know, because of uh, an infection or, you know, patient choice, that hypogamma can, can you know, linger on for two, three additional months, and the patients will still remain at infection risk. So, you know, I, I think what we're learning is that in the real world, you know, we will use bispecifics differently because we have to marry that, that you know, safety and efficacy um, in, in managing our patients. And this is the real world data that we'll see. I think I saw at least five different abstracts of groups putting that experience together, including ours. Yeah, I and mean, this is and this is important. This is like a practical thing, right? I mean, you know that these drugs are going to be utilized in the community, and people need just to be aware of them. Okay, what yeah. else? All right. So then, you know, in terms of the clinical abstracts, uh, you know, uh, the other one that really uh, piqued my interest was the venetoclax data. There is a venetoclax, daratumumab, dexamethasone combination experience being presented. Um, it is in translocation 1114 disease only. These are patients who have relapsed refractory disease. Um, and in this group of patients, the overall response rate was 96%. CR or better rate was 67%. And, and you know, the reason why I bring this up is uh, we have a biomarker that's translocation 1114. We know that venetoclax preferentially works well for that, that population. Now we're seeing data when we come just at an anti-C38 in the relapse setting, we're getting remarkable depth of response 
response and the durability of response, I think it's uh, over 24 months or something like that. Um, but, you know, we have to, you know, when we talk about personalizing therapy for our patients, translocation 1114 is that disease subset where we can treat this, these patients differently. They don't need to get data RVD, you know, they can get data in venetoclax. And if in the relapse setting, they're getting 96% responses, 67% CRHs, you know, you can imagine, you know, their responses in the frontline setting would at least be comparable, you know, if if not better. So, so I was excited to see the long-term, you know, follow-up from that data and, you know, I would really like to see some frontline experience for translocation 1114. Um, you know, um, I always lament the the Bellini trial uh, for for uh, side tracking the venetoclax development. Uh, that despite advice from many you know myeloma experts, you know, an all comers trial was designed. And now we are so behind in, you know, getting this biomarker-driven treatment for our patients. But I think that's that's the abstract that I'm excited about. Uh, I want to learn more about it, um, uh, you know, um, and um, and see if we can plan some, uh, you know, future studies in the front line. I want to just back up just a little bit because it's clinically important. So conceptually, though, is there anything in at Ash 2023? anything whatsoever that would make you not recommend autologous stem cell transplant in newly diagnosed myeloma who are transplant eligible normally? No, not at this point. Right. In fact, in fact, the two trials that are being, the randomized phase three studies being presented, you know, augment that case. So um, even if patients, you know, uh, you know who are who have standard risk disease. If they get RVD, uh, they get transplant and they get land maintenance. You know their expected PFS would be somewhere you know around the seventy uh, to eighty month mark. You know that's six mm -hmm. to seven years. Mm -hmm. And for high risk patients, it's almost four and a half to five years. Now, when you add data, what we are seeing is uh, you know very high four and five year PFS rates. We're talking about four year PFS rate of 87%. And that's what you know uh, these trials are reporting. Um, so you know you can imagine the median PFS being you know 95, 96 months or or even more, who knows, uh, for standard risk patients. And then for high risk patients, you know, we would anticipate uh, you know, six and a half, seven years. So when you're seeing, you know, these numbers, you're seeing them in the context of transplantation. That's a very high bar right. to overcome. You know, right. we have to prove the point. So I don't see any data that uh, tells us that, you know, we shouldn't be doing autos. Yeah, and that's and that's important because I'm trying to get a few nuggets for listeners. The other question, and then I'll move on to the subsequent abstract you have. Did you see any data whatsoever at ASH 2023 that might obviate the need for maintenance therapy? I know we talked about maintenance LEN versus LEN and DARA, but I do sense that you guys all believe in maintenance treatment at this point. Have you seen anything to say? Maybe I don't need to give maintenance. Maybe I can give less. All of that. All of that stuff. Not yet. I think you know um, what we will learn is Len will go the distance for standard risk patients. I think what we will also learn is that um, 
uh, we need something more for the high-risk patients in maintenance. Uh, what I'm really curious to know you know, in in both these studies, you know, and I hope that we, you know, uh, we get more detailed information later on. Is you know, um, uh, what's the pattern of you know relapse during maintenance for patients who are only on LEN versus LEN plus anti C thirty eight? So, short answer to your question is, I don't see any reason why we need to change our current, you know, continuous therapy model. Can I tell how, you what I would? Uh, yeah. Okay, go ahead. You're gonna say, however. <laughs> however, you know, uh, next year at Tash, you know, or you know, or maybe you know, um, at ASCO of 2025, the SWOG 1803 trial will will tell us, you know, whether we can stop maintenance in some patients. Um, you know, they don't need to be treated continuously, and that would be an MRD. Continue, you exactly. know, that, is, yeah. that is totally what I was going to say. What I would, what I love about MRD, and I think there's a lot of controversy sometimes, all of that stuff. But in my mind, I think one of the opportunities for MRD is de-escalating therapy or escalating therapy. I would love to see a scenario where if it's MRD negative, you stop lenalidomide and follow these patients. If MRD positive, you continue the treatment because you could make a biological argument that there's still disease i just can't see it yeah yeah agreed okay. i completely agree what do you have what, what do you have also for us all right so so the other things that you know so these were like you know the fit you know big five themes that i had from a clinical abstract standpoint and of course you know we we learn about a lot of bispecifics their updates you know even combination you know data we will have long-term survivorship data from CAR T-cell therapy. You know, we will also hear some very interesting rare event that the FDA just, you know, send a notification about, um, you know, uh, with, you know, concern about, you know, um, insertional, you know, second primary malignancies with CAR T-cell therapy. Uh, but I want to focus more on you know, some very interesting data. And um, and, and this actually, you know, uh, goes towards um, normalization of the bone marrow. We know that, you know, myeloma cells like to live in the bone marrow. They, um, you know, have uh, negative uh, impact on the bone marrow microenvironment as well as, uh, you know, the immune repertoire. And, and what we are starting to learn, you know, is... Um, um, you know, the special heterogeneity and patterns of what the normal bone marrow microenvironment looks like and how it gets disturbed as patients go from MGUS to smoldering to active myeloma. And, and we have some, you know, very elegant, uh, you know, um, uh, multi-omics work being presented by two groups that is looking at what that normal signature looks like. And I think that is a very important step towards exactly what, you know, you were talking about. If we can get patients to a normalization signature, um, you know, uh, uh, then we may be able to utilize that to stop treatment in patients, you know, that can be, you know, that can be the the aspirational mm -hmm. goal. And and so it's very elegant work. It's early work, but it's being presented by two groups. And I really like, you know, those those two abstracts. Um, um, so that's, I'm, I, that's, yeah. that's wonderful. We look forward, uh, hopefully, to to learning more about this. Anything in the smoldering myeloma world, like anything? I mean, you know, it, it takes so much. Uh, space on social media as well as all outlets because it, it's a it's a myeloma it's just not causing any trouble and i think that 
you know, there's a school of thought that we should treat some of these patients on trials. There's a school of thought we shouldn't and, and all of these things. Have you seen anything at ASH 2023 pertaining to smoldering myeloma where we should be on the lookout for? Uh, we see updates from the previous trials as well as, you know, some of the newer studies looking at, you know, uh, anti-C38 combinations uh, with PIs and IMIDs uh, for finite duration of treatment, um, you know, but but most of these are either, you know, uh, updates or, you know, presentations that were already presented earlier this year and and we just have a follow-up update. I think that the message is clear that, you know, early intervention in these patients uh, does improve the likelihood of, you know, end organ damage or preventing end organ, organ damage from happening. Uh, but I think, you know, it's still debatable what would be the right strategy for what kind of patients. And and that's where, you know, the data will come from randomized studies. And, um, and there are, you know, uh, there is one randomized trial that's currently ongoing in the U.S. cooperative group. There are at least four different randomized studies in the European, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, countries or you know by the European groups. Um, you know, there is nothing really, um, you know, practice informing being presented in the smoldering, you know, or high risk smoldering myeloma space at the moment. And I know that, you know, I, I promise you won't take a lot of time, like, you know, just uh, about half hour. So I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to really uh, cut this short if there are additional abstracts you'd like to share with us. So um, the ball is in your court. What more you'd like to share with us? Uh, no, I think that that was, those were the primary things, you know, I think the last um, piece that I can share, you know, for, for our audience, um, we are just starting to learn uh the mechanisms of resistance to BCMA and GPRC5D directed therapies, whether those mechanisms are cancer cell specific or the immune microenvironment specific. And so there are certain abstracts that are showing um, uh, those patterns. You know, there are certain BCMA direct, you know, mutations that can happen or GPRC5D loss or mutations that can happen. And, and we're learning what those are and how they happen. And, and whether, you know, one, you can rescue a patient with a different BCMA direct bispecific, uh, you know, who has progressed on one of them because they would be binding to different epitopes. So so some of that translational work is, you know, early work is being presented, uh, you know, by our group, by Nazar Balis's group, by, you know, our, our German colleagues. Um, and I think that would be the next frontier of, uh, you know, how to figure out which therapies to give to what patients, you know, when you're trying to pick between BCM and GPRC5D treatments. These are amazing, Saad. I can't thank you enough. Really, I, I think uh, whether folks are listening to this uh, who have uh, seen the abstracts in person or they have not seen them, they are going to go back to the ASH directory and they're going to go back to the ASH booklets and online and they're going to see all of these as well, hopefully watch them online if they did not watch them live. I am very grateful for your time, your wisdom, and for spending time with the Heman Pulse and our listeners discussing myeloma in Dash 2023. Thank you so much, Ari.